When I was in the third grade, this is an important story now, pay attention here. When I was in the third grade, I was in a play called Theseus and the Minotaur. I played Bard B. So it was my job to narrate things in between the acts. And the reason that matters is because I've known since third grade about a place called Crete. And I've known since then that it was full of a bunch of nasty people that had this nasty evil minotaur monster. Learned later that part wasn't true. But that's who this letter is written to. Titus, who is effectively functioning as the pastor or the bishop, you might say, of this entire island. Let's read verse 5 again. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This letter is sent, as we saw last time, to Paul's friend Titus, who was probably one of the first disciples that Paul ever made and was with him for a very long time. But now we see that he is on the Isle of Crete, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's actually at the mouth of the Aegean Sea, which the Aegean Sea is between the peninsula of Greece and also the mainland of Asia. It's called Asia Minor or Turkey. At the bottom of that, that inlet, that Aegean Sea, is the island of Crete, southeast of Greece. Uh, at one time, it was a very powerful nation. King Minos is the legendary king of Crete. Whether he was real or not is a matter of debate. But it's famous, as I just said, for the legend of the Minotaur, which is the the guy with a bull's head that wandered through the maze and Theseus killed him. And then also the story of Icarus and Daedalus, where they made wings, but Icarus flew too close to the sun and then the wings melted and he fell into the ocean. That was when they were imprisoned on the island of Crete. So it's a legendary place in the Greek mind, and it had been a very powerful kingdom in its day. A lot of people actually believe that the Philistines came from Crete. If you read in the Old Testament, it references the Kaftorim, or the island of Kaftor, where the Philistines came from. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 23 references this. And many Bible scholars believe that the island of Kaftor is, in fact, the island of Crete. If that is true, that means we have an epistle that was written to the pastor of the Philistines. Isn't that pretty cool? Pretty cool to think about God is able to redeem everybody, even those Philistines or the ones that gave rise to the Philistines. So that's the island of Crete. The book of Acts does not mention Crete as one of the places that Paul stopped. So as I said last time, Titus was written after Paul's first imprisonment, which you read about in the book of Acts, or first imprisonment, excuse me, third missionary journey. And that tradition and the, the book here would seem to indicate that Paul was released after that first imprisonment, and went on a fourth missionary journey, which included Spain, pretty crazy that Paul went all the way to Spain, but also apparently included Crete, because Paul says, I left you there, indication being they were there together, and Paul had to leave early. This frequently happened, where Paul would leave a city and leave behind one of his helpers in order to finish the job, and in this case, that was Titus. And next week, we'll look about what Paul's opinion of the people of Crete was, and it would explain why he left Titus there, who seems to be one of his most trustworthy guys that knew how to handle difficult people, like the church in Corinth, for example. But he tells him to put what remained into order, basically to finish the job, to put it into order. So Paul would plant these churches, establish these churches, and very often he couldn't stay. So what he would leave behind his helpers to do is to set up leadership and structure in these churches. Notice how he says, to appoint elders in every town. 
And it is interesting. Many of the books I read referenced uh, the fact that Crete was known for being very densely populated. There were a lot of towns and a lot of cities on the island of Crete. So for Titus, this would have been quite a job to make sure that he established a church in every city and to appoint elders, which is what Paul and his missionary team often did. In Acts 14, 23, when we finish up the first missionary journey, they're finishing up these churches in Galatia. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas planted these churches, established them doctrinally, told them about Jesus. But before they went home, they made sure that there were elders, there were leaders in each of these churches to hold them all together. Now, the New Testament is not insistent upon a specific form of church order, meaning should it be led by just one pastor? Should it be led by a plurality of elders? What about the congregation voting? What about a blending of these things? Uh, there's actually, the people that have strong opinions on this all have Bible verses to back them up about the best way to do it. So while the New Testament does not insist upon a specific form of church order, what it does insist upon is church order itself, that there must be leaders, there must be structure and organization in God's church. Every so often, this was happening when I was in seminary, it's happened other times, to a wave will blow through the church at large where people say, what do we need pastors for? What do we need buildings for? What do we need organization to structure? Let's just get together and just, just dig the Holy Spirit heaviness, man. That's all we need. And, and it sounds very spiritual, and people can really make you feel bad about things. Just having everybody in charge, what's that all about? We're just supposed to love each other, and if we all have the Spirit, what difference does it make? And, you know, it doesn't matter if there's people, it doesn't matter if there's this or that. Alright, that all sounds good, but you have to run up hard against the fact that Paul the Apostle didn't do it that way. The early church had a very defined leadership structure. And over time, it became more rigid. And you had, you know, the, the bishop and the archbishop and the various priests and all that. And then, you know, after the Reformation, things relaxed a little bit. In the United States, it was often very relaxed because it was out on the frontier. And, you know, you didn't really have the option to have a very defined church structure. So the fact that we have it is good. The way you do it is less important. For our part as a church, we are pastor-led elder-supported, congregation-involved. What do I mean by that? We have a board of, of elders. They're not just there to make financial decisions. We often think about the big steps of the church together. Uh, I am the, as the pastor, I have the freedom to lead the ministry. I don't need to call and ask permission. For example, if I said, hey, I'd like to do an outreach here. Let's plan an event. I don't need to get the elders' permission for that. Not that I feel like I would need it, by the way. I think that we are all in very much agreement with each other. But also, we are congregation-involved, meaning... I ask you all about things all the time. We're always talking about things at the prayer meeting or especially on some of our evening services and we'll put out ideas and pray through them and talk about them. And I listen to advice all the time because even though I'm the leader here and the elders are the leaders here, that doesn't mean that, you know, get out of my way. <laughs> As we're going to talk about today, that's not a good way to lead. And I'll say this too, for those of you that have strong opinions about church government, and there are those that are out there, especially those of a more Calvinist bent, they follow in that John Knox tradition, they very strongly believe in the plurality of elders, which is, is great, we have that here. But I'll say any system of church leadership is only as good as the people that are involved in it. 
You, know, you can have one man in charge and, and doesn't listen to anybody, but if he's a good, godly man, it, it's going to be all right. And you can have you know, congregational voting, which also sounds very good. Very, everybody's got the Holy Spirit. We're going to hear the voice of the Lord. But if you've got some bad people in that congregational system, you all know it can really make trouble. So what Paul gives us here is less information about the structure of the leadership and much more to say about the character of the leaders themselves. And this is exactly what he did in the other pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a much longer list, actually. This is going to be more or less a summary. And as we go through these, these are the kind of leaders that we are to look to in God's church. Primarily in your own local church here. Primarily for myself, as I look to those that can head up various ministries and all that. But also for yourself, I would add, as you are looking to pastors that you're going to listen to online, as you're going to look to those that are going to be theologians or those that are going to have ideas about the church, examine their life. You're expected and supposed to do that. But not only that, we should never have the attitude that goes, well, I ain't got to do that. I'm not a preacher. Okay, true. You might not be a preacher. But these are character traits that should be true of every believer in God's church. They're just especially true for those who are to be in charge because we're supposed to set an example. And we don't want hypocrites in charge of the church. Jesus had a serious problem with hypocrites. The whole reason we know the word hypocrite is because Jesus said it an awful lot. So this is not just true for me as the pastor or for the elders or the ministry team leaders, but for you yourself to be considering these things. So let's dive right into this. What kind of people was Titus supposed to pick to lead these churches? Verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So right off the bat, you've got this first requirement that you see in both places where Paul talks about this. Above reproach. You see this here in verse 6. You're going to see it again in verse 7. And you see it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. This is the main characteristic of a church leader, and I'd say of a Christian too. Above reproach does not mean perfect and flawless. What it means is there is no legitimate grounds of accusation against that man. Everybody's going to mess up. But even when people mess up who are above reproach, the way they handle it demonstrates that there is really no accusation to be made against them. Joseph, in Genesis 39, talks about him working in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar was able to entrust him with everything he had done. And everything Joseph's hands touched succeeded and prospered. So that Potiphar didn't even think about anything except what he ate. That was the only thing in his house that he really cared about. Now what happens is Joseph is falsely accused of sexually harassing, even raping Potiphar's wife. And we read that story, we know it's not fair because it was a false accusation. And in fact, it seems Potiphar might have known that because the penalty for such a thing was death in Egyptian culture, but Joseph is only sent to prison. You see Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 5, when he's being made one of the rulers of the kingdom under Darius, all the people that wanted to get Daniel in trouble, they said, we will never find a way to accuse Daniel unless we find an accusation related to his God. So they had to make prayer illegal in order to get at Daniel. That's above reproach. That's when the only thing they can do to come against you is through false accusation or through some manner that is not able to be compromised as a Christian. So, for example, when, when somebody today wants to accuse this Christian pastor or that Christian pastor of being unloving, 
And you say, why is that? Well, because they refuse to uh, affirm homosexuality. It's like, well, uh, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm a minister of the word of God. I'm not answering to you. Above reproach. And there's always going to be nasty people that want to make accusations. But when a sincere, honest, godly person is able to look at a man and say, there's nothing you can really point to as wrong in that person's life or sinful, that's what above reproach means. And I'll say, in, in each of these things, it's because he says above reproach and not perfect, right? Grace must be involved. We're going to run through this big, long list, right? And this is not, well, as you read these, we should not be the kind of people that practice a sort of Christian cancel culture where it's like somebody messes up one time. That's it. You're done. You're out of here, pal. Get going. That's not how we handle things, right? And it really bothers me when Christians try to do this to each other. Usually we try to do it to some preacher online whose doctrine we disagree with. And you try to like twist his words like, and you completely yank it out of the context. And we don't do that. Even if somebody does mess up or fall short or whatever it may be, we can have grace with one another. Perfection is not necessary, but here's what it is. Consistency is necessary. Right? You, we'll all be able to look back on a time where pastor so-and-so or elder so-and-so or this leader didn't do it quite right. Okay, fine. But it's the usual trend of their life to do it the right way. That's what we're looking for. And specifically, we start here with the family of these men. Family qualifications. The personal life. Now, some people would get rather offended at that. Say, what difference does it make what happens in my house? I'm doing a good job for the church, aren't I? I've heard that before. But the way Paul says is, if you can't take care of your house, you can't take care of God's house. 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, Paul wrote, If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Oh, but he's so anointed. He's such a preacher. Okay, his kids are a mess and his wife hates him, but you know, he really can preach. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who is above reproach, especially in their family life. First thing it says is, the husband of one wife. Literally in Greek, this says a one-woman man. What does this mean? You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I had to write an essay on this in my pastoral duties class when I was in seminary and uh, about all the different options. What does this specifically mean and what does it include? And there's so many books that are written on this, but the short version of this, guys, is this guy has to be monogamous. <laughs> he can't have more than one wife. It means what it says. Now, we hear that and we go, well, of course, of course he only has one wife. But man, when you're going out planting churches everywhere, you're going to find all sorts of people. And it's not that, you know, we're not going to go and tell somebody who was married to five women in some tribe somewhere that he's got to divorce all these wives. No, because that wouldn't be good either. But God wants his people to be the example in the church. It also, of course, includes ideas of sexual morality. That should kind of be a, a given, I would say. But primarily, it's saying that this needs to be a man with one wife. Notice also, women are unable to fulfill that qualification. How exactly is a woman to be the husband of one wife? This is something that might seem kind of silly to you, but it matters. Because those, Paul in 1 Timothy is very plain. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but she is to remain silent. That's the, what the Bible says. And there are those that say, well, Paul in that passage, he's just being a, he's just being a bigot. He's just, yeah, he doesn't understand the times like, like we do. You know, our culture is in, as uh, immersed in feminism as it is. We have a hard time accepting that. But as we see here, Paul's assumption is that the pastors and elders and leaders in the church are going to be men. And we need to be okay with that because that's the way that God set it up. But people can be very rigid on this issue of the husband of one wife thing, uh, especially pastors who have, are, well, first of all, are single. Uh, there are some denominations that insist 
that the pastor be married because how can you be the husband of one wife if you do not even have one wife? I don't think that's quite what Paul's getting at here. First of all, because Paul himself was not married. Neither was Jesus Christ, I might add. So I don't think that's quite what he's getting at. But, you know, I, there are those that very persuasively argue that the temptation of a man in leadership who is unmarried can be rather difficult to handle. But that's, I don't think, what he's getting at. There are also those that uh, look at a pastor's previous life. There are some that if a pastor is widowed and then remarried, they say, you can't be a pastor. I think the Bible gives plenty of biblical permission for those that have uh, experienced the death of a spouse to remarry. I don't think they're in sin. I don't think that there's a problem with such a person being ordained to the ministry. There are those who are divorced. And this gets a little more, more touchy, I would say. So if you come across somebody who was divorced and then remarried before they were saved... I, I think that might fall under an appropriate category, but I think the manner and the terms by which somebody was divorced or remarried are also important to consider. The Lord hates divorce, but there are, are all sorts of things that the Lord is willing to overlook and forgive in order to ordain somebody to the ministry. I mean, Paul was a persecutor of the church, don't forget. So again, I think grace is the key here, and, and the standard is obviously to, to be the husband of one wife, to take it one case at a time in love here. Now let's talk about his kids. And this is not saying that you must have kids to be a pastor either. But if you got them, what do you do with them? They are to be faithful. Now, the ESV says they are to be believers. The Greek word there is faithful. Literally, there it says, who has faithful children. And that verse, faithful, is often used in the Bible to mean a believer, a faithful person. It does not always mean that. So there is some debate here. Is this saying that the children have to be you know, believers, baptized children? Or is it saying that even if they're not believers specifically, they need to be under the leadership and authority of that man, of that pastor? You'll see that he kind of goes on to explain, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You shouldn't have rebellious kids in the ministry. If you can't control your kids, if they're out, you know, they're debauched children, they're out there making a fool of themselves and, and shaming your house, that, that, according to Paul, says something about you as your ability to lead your household. And are you going to be able then to lead the church, lead God's household? Uh, I don't know if you can take it so specifically to say that children must be believers, but I would at least question why not. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're a pastor and you're leading a church and your children themselves are not believers, I, I would wonder about that. Uh, but I do know there are instances where pastors have raised their families as they should, and then their children leave the house, and as so many do, they, they tragically run off and they abandon the Lord Jesus. That's tragic and that's horrible. And I've been around cases where I look at that and I say, I don't know what else you really could have done. You know, the fruit of your ministry is there. Um, but, you know, I, I think... Because we live in such an interesting culture where our children are kind of out and gone and then that's it, that needs to be taken into account. So should a, should a pastor be allowed to have children who are not believers? I think if you've got children in your house that hate Jesus and hate God and want nothing to do with the church, yeah, that's a problem. If you've got a 17-year-old kid that has gotten infatuated with atheism or something like that and says, I don't, I don't know if I believe in God anymore, but he's still submitting to your authority as a man and as a dad, and he's willing to at least attend the church and be there, then I think that's, that falls within the bounds of what he's talking about here. But again, it, it's one of those, okay, how do we handle this? With grace and with love and with patience, I'd say case by case too. 
at an age-appropriate level, are the pastor's children obeying the pastor and serving the Lord Jesus? In short, the leaders in the church, especially those that are ordained and elders, which is really what we're talking about, are to be aspirational. They are to be living up to the standard for the rest of us to follow. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now today we love to be all cute and say things like, don't look at me, don't follow me, just follow Jesus. Now look, I get what you mean when you say that, but at the same time, it's, I hope as a pastor I can say, do it like I'm doing it. I hope you can say, uh, I don't really quite know how to pray. Let me learn how Pastor Tyler does it, or Steve does it, or Zach does it. Or I, I don't really know what to do with my kids or with my spouse. Do you think you could teach me and help me? I would hate for you to come to me and be like, I don't know. You figure it out, you tell me. Like, that doesn't make me a bad person or it doesn't make me a sinner, but it might make me an ineffective pastor. So this is an important thing. The family, the, the above reproach in the family. All right, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. There it is again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So first of all, you see this word overseer. He said elder earlier. He says other, other terms to describe this. All these are basically overlapping. They're all basically the same term. This was not a very rigid structure yet in the church. Um, but what he's showing us here is that Character is what matters, not so much the structure. And he gives us now, he talked about the family. Now he's going to give us some negatives. Some things that the church pastor, leader, elder should not be. Character flaws to be avoided. Now why do we need to know these? Because church members, we can be suckers for somebody who is really talented and really skilled and yet has some flaws in their personal life. If they can preach if they can evangelize, if they can sing, God help us, we're willing to overlook a little way too much. And this is why some people outside the church get bitter towards the church because they're like, you guys are all full of it because look at this guy. And you're going to, well, but he's so anointed. I don't know what that means. All I know is that he's crooked or whatever it might be. Well, Paul understood that. Here's the first negative character flaw. He must not be arrogant. Must not be arrogant. Prideful servants of Jesus doesn't really make sense, does it? Was Jesus prideful? No, he wasn't. Jesus was the humblest of all because he was the highest of all and lowered himself to the lowest of all. So we're supposed to be humble as pastors. And as you're looking for somebody whom you can serve and follow, you don't want an arrogant person. But here's the thing. Sometimes we kind of like the pastor or the leader to have a little bit of swagger to him, right? We want him to kind of strut a little bit and kind of like, yeah, that's, that's who we're going to follow. That's who we want to be our, our, our leader. We want him to be charismatic. We want him to be strong. And you kind of do want those things, but you can be humble and charismatic. You can be humble and strong and skilled. And we shouldn't say, well, look, I know he kind of thinks an awful lot of himself, but you know what? He's just so gifted. And we don't do that. I listened to a series of podcasts about a prominent church leader who had fallen and the stories they were telling about this guy, like at the height of his ministry where he was like, you know, I need a, I need a private, you know, car to drive in and you guys drive in this one because I'm a big deal. I would like say that, like I'm a big deal. If I ever say something like that, I promise you I'm joking. All right. Hey, I'm a big deal, man. I, I, you got to listen to me. I'm somebody. You can't get this anywhere else. Like, hey, that's not what we want in the pulpit or in the leadership of the church. How about not quick-tempered? You don't want a pastor with a short fuse, do you? 
We don't even want a regular boss with a short fuse. But you know what you'll hear sometimes, I love to like read leadership books and management things and all that. You'll see like they'll look at somebody like Steve Jobs or you know somebody like, I don't know, pick your favorite president who's got like a really quick temper and they'll say, that's how you've got to be, man. If you want to lead, you've got to be ready to let them know right away that you're unhappy and they've got to be a little bit afraid of you so that will work extra hard to serve you. And like, that's a great way to lead God's church, isn't it? To be quick-tempered, always upset about something, to be harsh, to where nobody wants to come to you and tell you anything because they know you're going to blow up in their face. To be a minister of God's love and be quick-tempered, how does that work together? What does it say about God's temper? God is slow to what? Anger. And then people love, all oh, the wrath of God, I'm going to show them the wrath of God on these people. God is slow to anger. So you should likewise, as a leader, be slow to anger. Why do we sometimes love and set up and boost these pastors that are like these angry people? You hear them preach and they're always like frothing out the mouth about something and there's always some, they can't just, you ever known somebody that can't preach a positive message? They can't just talk about God's grace, they gotta talk about all the people that are getting God's grace wrong because they don't know how to communicate otherwise. Watch out for people like that. Because they're grumpy in the pulpit. They're probably grumpy in real life, too. Nor should they be drunkards. I mean, right, obviously, right? And I think you can extend that to, to drugs as well. Because it's the same, oh, Bible doesn't say nothing about marijuana. Uh, yeah, it does, actually. The word is pharmakia. It means uh, witchcraft, but it also refers to drugs. And the whole point about not getting drunk is because you're not supposed to be intoxicated. You're not supposed to be out of control ever. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the last one? Self-control. So you're never supposed to be in a place mentally where you cannot make a godly decision. So they're not to be addicted to wine or drugs. I will say this word, not a drunkard, not given to much wine, this is not necessarily teaching that a pastor or a preacher must be abstinent from such things. Paul will tell Timothy later, take a little wine for your stomach. This is a very American thing where most of the time we insist on our pastors being teetotalers in that way. But I do want to make the point that is not what Paul is saying here. It's, it's kind of like the one woman man thing. It's obvious. Don't have lots of wives. Okay? Don't be a drunkard. You, you shouldn't be addicted to anything. Least of all, alcohol or something that is going to impair your judgment. It's implying there is a lack of dependence on anything but the Holy Spirit. And there are some preachers, man, that like, they're like the apostles of craft beer. I don't understand this. It's like, you can't just have this liberty to yourself. You've got to make sure that everybody else wants to do it too. And I, I don't get that, man. Just have your liberty unto yourself is what I'll always say. The next one, not violent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who wants a violent pastor? What's, define your pastor in three words. Well, violent like, yeah, but there are those guys out there, man. There are pastors that put their hands on people in the church or on their staff members. Or well, maybe I've never hit anybody, but like they'll throw things or break windows. Or you hear this stuff. Oh, he's just so passionate. Uh, no, he's out of control. He's violent. You know, and the other translations will say sometimes pugnacious. Pugnacious is like the guy that's always looking to fight somebody. Got a chip on his shoulder. Kind of goes along with being quick-tempered. But, you know, violent. I, I have heard some people, by the way, say this is why pastors shouldn't play football or shouldn't do boxing or shouldn't do, like, jujitsu in their spare time. It's not the same thing, all right? It's not talking about sports. It's talking about somebody that's, like, trying to pick a fight at the grocery store here. Not violent. And not greedy for gain. Man, that one doesn't get violated quite a bit, doesn't it? Greedy for gain. 
desperate to make money off of God's people. These guys are everywhere. We go to Nepal and we run into this all the time and guys that are trying to just, you know, yeah, you can be a pastor if you pay me such and such money. I'll come up and do communion for your church if you pay this. Like that happens a lot. And you can start to, ah, oh, these, these poor people, they don't understand. Well, that happens here too, guys. But the people can make doctrines and cloak their greed in doctrine. They'll, if you're going to go around teaching people that God wants you to have all the money and all the wealth and all the everything, then it, therefore, me being flashy and having lots of fancy cars and houses, and that's just proof that the doctrine works. So keep on sending in more money. It's a problem. I don't want your money, just so you know. I don't want it. I don't need it. And we shouldn't need it. And we shouldn't want it. Greedy for gain. There are pastors that won't do certain ministries. They're not going to be paid. There are stories that I've heard about probably prominent teachers whose names you would know who kind of do this scratch my back, I'll scratch yours thing where it's like, I'm going to invite you to my church and we're going to give you a $20,000 honorarium to speak because then you're going to invite me to your church and you're going to give me a $20,000 honorarium. And they kind of work together to rob their churches. of. I can't even imagine taking that much money to preach somewhere. I remember the first time I got like 50 bucks for preaching. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Let's go to Red Lobster. You know, let's celebrate. <laughs> and I never want to lose that because they're not to be greedy for gain because we're not pastors and church leaders are not to be like other leaders. So beware of those that want to tell you, well, listen, if you want to be a good pastor, you got to be like this CEO or got to be like this president or got to be like this general. What did Jesus say? Matthew 20 verses 25 through 28 when they were fighting over who was going to be the greatest, you know, like the apostles did, he called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Got to remember that sometimes, especially those of you that feel called to the ministry in some way or they're going to be in leadership. A pastor can be like a CEO in a lot of ways. There's certain overlaps, right? Or like a coach or like a general or like a governor. There's, there's any kind of leadership. There's going to be lessons, but he is not any of those things. He is something unique, something that is distinct from all those things. And the way we lead is not carnal, but it's spiritual. But so many ministries, I will say blessedly not this one, will overlook these failures because, well, that's just what you deal with when you have a strong leader. If you're going to have a manly leader of God's church, you know, he's going to have a little bit of swagger. And, you know, he deserves to be paid. I mean, that's just the way it is. And, you know, don't tick him off because he's the, he's the God's man for the hour. We shouldn't do that. We should insist upon these characteristics in our leadership as churches. And I'll say in days like this where the church is so desperate and we're looking at the culture sliding away, and especially as we think politically, be careful who you support in the church to lead us. Because you do not want to violate God's word on this one. We need the people that are like Christ to lead Christ's people. We are representatives of Jesus. As a pastor, it is Christ's instruction and Christ's example that I am to follow. So don't let the allure of success blind you from these character flaws in Christian leaders because they shouldn't be tolerated, okay? Let's get on to verse 8. But, so none of those things, but hospitable. A lover of good, 
self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So these are some positive character traits. We had the negative ones. Now we've got the positive ones. What does it look like to be above reproach? What are you looking for in somebody that you want to follow and listen to as a leader in God's church? Number one, hospitable. Hospitable. That means they are open with their, first of all, their home. That a pastor is willing to to have people into his house. And at this time, especially when people would travel through and you didn't have hotels really and you needed to stay in someone's house, pastor needed to be the kind of person, the first on the list to do that. But also open with their time, I would say. Open with their resources with all people. A pastor, church staff, church elders cannot be protective of their time and their stuff. You, you need to be hospitable and open to other people. You know, we can kind of build these walls as leaders sometimes. Kind of like, well, when I'm, at, when I'm in the office, then you can talk to me. But other than that, just leave me alone, right? Now, I will say there is a place where a pastor sometimes need to develop a healthy boundary and a healthy distance between those that would monopolize their time for, you know, that you very often you'll get people that will come up and they want to call you all day, every day, and they want to talk about this issue and that issue, and they really have no intention of fixing it. And this is just from my own experience here. They have no intention of doing what you want, but talking to you makes them feel better about it. And now after church, you don't have time to talk to anybody else who might really need your help. And those who really deserve your hospitality or maybe really deserve money from the church or whatever it is, don't get a chance to be heard. So that's one thing. But as a rule, a pastor shouldn't be standoffish and stingy. Now, you don't want Ebenezer Scrooge as the pastor of your church. Maybe at the end of the book, after he, you know, he learns his lesson. But hospitable. Number two, a lover of good. I like this one. It just really stuck out to me this time. A lover of good. This means he delights in truth and righteousness. And I think in this day and age, the best thing you can describe this, this is a man who is not tempted by other philosophies, but is a lover of good. Not somebody that is, you ever meet these guys? They're, they're kind of resentful of some of the things the Bible asks us to do. Like, I know this is what the Bible says, but you know, th this, this philosopher, he really seems to have something here. And you talk to him long enough, you realize, you're not really a preacher of the gospel, are you? You're really more a preacher of Friedrich Nietzsche as interpreted by Jesus. Or you're a preacher of, I don't know, pick your favorite guy as interpreted by Jesus Christ. That's not what my job is to be. I'm to be a lover of good. I'm never going to stand up here, and this is why sometimes I'll insist on certain biblical commandments that might make you uncomfortable, because I love God's word. And like, Paul, like David says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. David goes, I can't stand it when everybody is like, ah, I know the Bible says this, but I kind of think that. And I know the Bible says we shouldn't swear, but is it really that big a deal? And I know the Bible says this about sexual morality, but you know, well, love is love, whatever it's going to be. David goes, I love your law, and I can't stand it when people are wishy-washy on it. That's the pastor and leader's job, is to be insistent upon the truth, to be a lover of Christ's commandments, to open up the word and say, yes, Lord, to love what is good. Number three, to be self-controlled. And we kind of hit this in several ways already. Mastered in his temper and in the vices that tempt him. You know, literally you can translate that word sane. <laughs> of a sound mind. So you do not want an insane pastor. 
You want the opposite of that. You want a very sane, in his right mind kind of pastor. But I mean, really, the sense is not so much, you know, don't, don't ordain a crazy person. The point is somebody who is in control of themselves. They're dependable. They're not going to come in one week and be all, you know, yelling and screaming and then come back the next week and be, you know, uh, uh, sorry about that. I didn't mean any of that. And the next week they're undoing it again. Somebody who's self-controlled. If you, you, if you look at your pastor and you say to yourself, that guy's out of control, that's a problem. That's why you need other leaders in the church, by the way, to help keep him sane. <laughs> Number four, upright. Upright. This is just the word dikaios. It means righteous or just. A pastor should be fair and honorable. This is the best place in the Bible where we read about pastors not being biased or prejudiced. And it does not matter which bias or prejudice it is, the socially acceptable one or the socially maligned one, that we're supposed to treat rich and poor and black and white and Jew and Greek all the same because they're all God's people. And not to come at this with a, with a tilted way of looking at life and say, well, and, and I don't even like it when pastors do this, although this is kind of a lesser thing, you understand me here? Like, well, this church is really out to minister to this community. I don't see that in scripture anywhere. You know, we're out here because we want to we want to specifically reach, you know, like lower income families with four or more children. I've heard this before. I used to have to write papers on this kind of thing. And I would always include a big, long footnote about how I do not agree with the methodology, but I'm going to write the paper because he asked me to. But it's like, what? okay, well, I'll ask guys, well, we're really out here to, you know, minister to lower income families. What do you do if somebody rich walks in? You kick them out? Oh, well, this really isn't for you, sir. What, do we ever do that in God's church? You know who, unfortunately, can be the worst offenders about this? Is our Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. This is a Jewish congregation. Uh, no, we don't do that. But we can get real, well, we want to support Israel and support the Jews and all that. No, the gospel is for everybody. And in God's church, there is to be no division and no separation. And there are things that are going to happen as things fall along like county lines and, and stuff like that. But you know what? We don't exclude people in God's church. And if the pastor is seeking to kind of like, I'm glad you're here, but if you leave, you know, that'd be just fine. This church is really for young families and you're kind of starting to age out a little bit here. And I've known pastors that will do that. They'll say, you know, and we work with such and such church so that when they kind of get a little too old for what we're doing here, we kind of transition them over. And it's like, where did you get that? Because you didn't get it from scripture. Upright, righteous. And the next one, holy. Holy, it carries the sense of being pious or devout. This means without major sin, with a sincere religion. You should hope that your pastor has a devotional life. And I'll tell you, your pastor does, all right? That he prays. If your pastor doesn't pray, okay, that's not something for him to work out while he's preaching, okay? That's something he should have worked out a long time ago. Your pastor needs to read the Bible. Okay? A, an elder, a, a leader in the church, needs to love the Word of God. To be engaged in all the, the spiritual disciplines of worship. He's a Christian. right? If you're basically going to be a professional Christian, you better at least be a good one. That's what this is saying. To be holy. To be sincere in what he does. Not just to preach it and say you should do, but for himself to be the one that sets the example. This is why I don't even like it when certain pastors, who are good men, but like they stand up and they're always saying things like, oh, really, you guys should be up here preaching to me. And I know I'm the worst person at prayer in this whole place. And you know, my wife really gets as much better than I do. I'm like, then what are you standing up there for? 
well, we're supposed to show grace. Uh, yeah, but the pastor is also supposed to be a leader and an example and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Catelyn will tell you I have those midnight manic prayer sessions. I'm like, I got to go to the church and pray for a few hours in the middle of the night. And she rolls over and says, okay. She's, she's kind of learned to roll with it now. I, this is what needs to be done, to be holy, to be pious, to be devout. And the last one is disciplined. I love the Greek word for disciplined. It literally means inner strength, to have inner strength. Isn't that a good word to describe discipline, right? To be strong internally from all manner of things, from planning in the church. Is a pastor able to organize a big group of people doing lots of different things? All the way down to persecution. Is he able to stand under persecution? Is he able to stand without turning towards reviling for reviling and evil for evil? But is he able to be disciplined even in the face of that? All of these things are a picture of a strong man, but who is strong in the Lord and committed to his ways and committed to his word and saying, this is how I'm going to live. If there's any question about that, we love you, but you probably shouldn't be in charge. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, when they first needed to appoint new leaders in the church, new deacons as they're called, the apostles said, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Good repute, right? Not somebody that everybody out there is going to go, you put that guy in charge? Now, they might disagree with the teachings of the Scripture. I'm not talking about that. But good repute. You, you really going to put that guy, that dude that's always showing up to the bar and beating people up, that's the guy in charge of your church? Full of the Spirit. Man, does he know God? Does God walk with this man? Is he full of wisdom? Oh, there are so many great godly people that need to be led because they'll make foolish decisions. You don't want one of those guys in charge of the church. Full of wisdom. The pastor is leading a spiritual group. And as we've been saying, you need spiritual qualifications to lead God's church. Don't look to the physical things first. Don't look at big, tall, strong Abinadab and say, that's the king of Israel. And ignore David because he's ruddy and good-looking and he's out there keeping the sheep. Look for those kinds of godly people. Well, verse 9, the last really qualification is going to lead into the next section, which we'll hit next week. He says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this last set here relates to doctrine, and the pastor, leader, elder's role as a teacher in the church. Again, every now and then you get a wave of people that say, why is the church so focused on teaching? Uh, because the Bible has an awful lot to say about teaching, that's why. There are people now that say there really is no such thing as false doctrine. There's just the doctrine of the age. It's like, really? Because the Bible talks about sound and false doctrine quite a bit. He says a leader, a pastor, must hold firm to the word. Primarily, that refers to the gospel itself. So, yeah, a pastor should be firm on the gospel. That's why I've told this story before, but Rob Bell was on TV back when he was doing his whole song and dance. And he was asked about if uh, Mary was really a virgin when Jesus was born. And he kind of was like, ah, 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 and kind of word salad his way around and didn't even answer the question. And, um, you know, then you asked him other questions about salvation. And, but my dad, when I was, we're watching together, he leans over and says, if you ever answer a question like that, you're fired immediately. Because <laughs> we hold firm to that trustworthy word. Really? You believe Jesus was God? Yes! Short answer. Do you really believe Jesus died on the cross and literally rose from the dead? Yes, I do. Well, how can you say that? Because I'm holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 
You believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? I do, and I've traveled all around the world to tell people that. Because I'm holding firm to the trustworthy gospel. But also, not just the, the gospel message itself, that's the main thing, but the Old and New Testaments both. You hold firm to those things. I'm never going to be the one to open up one of these books and say, now look, I know what this says, but y'all can do what you want. It's okay. They didn't really write this. This isn't really God's word. God's word is in here somewhere. But this isn't God's word. That's, that's making an idol out of the Bible. Man, I can't stand it when people say things like that. Because people say things like that, and then what happens next? They, they give you a long list of the parts you don't have to listen to. That's not what we do. Hold fast to the word. And notice he says, as taught. Which means we don't come along and mess with established doctrine. Now, there are things that we can clarify and we can affirm, but if something's been doctrine in the church for a long time, leave it alone. In fact, that's what Martin Luther and a lot of the reformers were angry about during the Reformation. It wasn't that we've discovered new things. It was that all of these doctrines about indulgences and the, the Pope as the vicar of Christ and all these things were new. They were innovated in the last couple centuries, but there was no way to combat it because they were burning people at the stake. So like, hey, you guys have deviated from the trustworthy word as taught. We've got to get back to the word as taught. And that's the constant battle. My job is to shepherd the flock, and I cannot do that without the Word of God. I'm not going to come here and teach you my ideas. If you ever think I'm teaching you my ideas, you should hear some of my ideas. Because they're not going to be up here. I don't even have a blog or anything for that reason, because I get myself in trouble real quick. My job is to teach God's Word. To teach God's Word as it applies to our life and our culture and our situation. 2 Timothy 3.16, you know it, I hope you know it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scriptures breathed out and profitable for teaching. So much for the idea, don't teach through the whole Bible, huh? And I know what people mean when they say that, but there are those, there's no really point in teaching Leviticus to the church. Why not? I just, no one's really going to get anything out of it. Really? Because Paul says all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And if you don't teach the whole thing, you're not going to be able to reprove and train and correct people because you won't have laid that foundation that all of this book matters. I've had people, usually teenagers, they'll tell me this, where they'll say, why is this wrong? Or why can't we do this? Or what about this? And I'll read them a verse like Isaiah, and they go, well, that's Old Testament. They go, and? All scripture is breathed out by God. So we can't have somebody in the pulpit who's wishy-washy on the Bible. Because his role is to teach the book. To teach God's word. As has been laid down by the apostles and prophets. But not just to teach, no. To rebuke those who bring in false teachings or false heresies and philosophies. Now, I'm very grateful that in our church... In our congregation here, we've never had a time where I've had to really lay it on the line because there's been some false teaching that's been believed by folks in this church. Praise the Lord for that. But as the church grows, that will probably happen. There's somebody that comes in and kind of worms their way into a home fellowship or something or kind of gathers a little posse after church or they all go out to lunch and they kind of like, they re-preach the message the right way. This happens. It happens all the time, unfortunately. It's been happening since Paul's day. And my job, and also not just mine, but the leaders and the elders and, the, and you, too. Our job is to confront those things according to the Word of God. Now, you may hear something taught and you know it's wrong and you don't quite know how to come at it. My job is to be here so that when you bring it to me, I can say, oh, I know just what to say. Let's get, let's get right at it. That doesn't make you less of a Christian. That just means it's my full-time job. 
is to be prepared for these things. This is why a pastor has to study not just the, you know, the regular Bible teaching, but doctrine, and to study apologetics, and to have a sense of what's going on out there in the culture. A lot of times we're able to head things off at the past because I can preach, kind of preach on them lightly early, so that when the moment comes, I can preach a little heavier and y'all get it, because you're ready for that. To rebuke. Many people say, well, pastor, your job is just to, just to minister to my needs, just to minister to felt needs in the church. Can I say this? If you don't know the Bible, pastor, you don't understand how to meet felt needs. What are you going to tell people? I'll tell you what they will say. You'll, you'll pick out the latest pop psychology book and you'll just teach that. that that's what people do is they say, well, I kind of pick up what's in the culture and somebody comes in and I give them counsel. I'll, I'll just kind of give them what I've learned instead of saying, well, here's what the Bible says. Well, that's not good enough. That doesn't help anybody. Uh, yes, it does. Don't let people tell you things like that. Well, you're not qualified. You don't have your degree in this and that and this other thing. Yeah, well, I, I hope that we are kind of culturally learning that having a degree in something does not make you the best person to deal with it necessarily. In fact, sometimes having a degree in something undermines the ability of the word to minister to your situation. Oh, you can't, you can't seriously believe that you lay hands on somebody that they'll be healed, do you? We have doctors now. Okay, Luke was a doctor, and he wrote the book with all the miracles in it, all right? Both of those things are true. You can't seriously be that. The Bible can address mental health concerns. That's kind of the big thing now, right? Mental health. It's, it's going to pass away in a few years. Just watch. There's always some psychological trend that passes through. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but it's like, the Bible can't address this. We need medicine, and we need psychologists, and we need this and that. And You know why we, can I give you my opinion on why there's been such a rise in those things? Because people aren't in church anymore. Because you're not reading the word anymore. You don't have a pastor around you. You don't have a community of people around you to let you know when something's a big deal or when it's not. You don't have somebody to give you that love and that comfort and that strong support and even a stiff rebuke when you need it. You're just kind of drifting with godless and, and scriptureless. So the only things that you have left are to meet the world's standards. So we're certainly not going to do it the world's way in here. And I certainly don't have a problem with those things in their proper place. You feel me? In their proper place. And I think that the Word of God is, is sufficient to handle all of these things, which is why my job is to know the Bible better than all of you, <laughs> to believe it stronger than all of you, to defend it to a degree that will not be required of the rest of you, to know about certain false teachings so that you never have to. Sometimes, you all will know this, you'll bring something to me, so-and-so said this and this, and I don't really know about that. And I'll go, oh, that's this thing. What do you mean? Oh, that's, you know, it's like when, uh, I don't know, when the whole social justice thing started sweeping through. I'm like, oh, that's postmodernism. I don't know what you mean. Oh, postmodern, they don't believe that words mean anything, and they don't believe in communication between people, so it kind of degrades everything. And, oh, I don't really understand that. And I'll say, I'll just stay away from that stuff. Because that's my job, is to know that. And I'm not saying that you guys shouldn't try to know the Bible as much as you can, but I have a responsibility as your leader to be in this thing every day. Not just to preach, but to learn it, to apply it to my own life, and to be able to defend against false teaching. I'm not going to farm that out to other men. And I think it's a mistake when the church farms out the theology side of the church to even the seminaries and the universities. Because we've seen what can happen to those things. And if I'm going to take all of my cues from the seminary or from the university, what happens when it goes south like Princeton and Harvard did? Those were, I mean, that's where Jonathan Edwards preached, man. That's where the, the pastors of the nation came from. You can thank Woodrow Wilson for introducing a lot of those changes, by the way, when he was the president of Princeton, kind of led the way for secular teaching being brought in, but that's another conversation I probably shouldn't have brought up. But in any case, <laughs> my job is to know this, this book, to know this word, and to know the God that inspired this book. 
and then to bring it to you. And not to let somebody else say, oh, just go check them out. They'll, they'll go figure it out. 2 Timothy 4, this is Paul's, some of Paul's last words. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own politics, I mean passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Isn't it interesting that today more people are interested in learning the ancient myths than they are the scriptures? I've just got so much to teach us. You haven't read your Bible, that's what you think, man. Preach the word. Because Paul says there's going to be days where people don't want to hear it. It's not your job to say, well, people don't want the word anymore, so what else can I give them? If people don't want to hear it, that's when you've got to dig your heels in, Timothy, Titus, Tyler. Don't let them lead you astray. Don't let people be, just wander away without fighting for their soul and fighting for their hearts. But as I say, to bring this all to a, a close here, we combat false teaching, but it must be done always in the love and in the character of Christ Jesus. Because you can turn into a quick-tempered man when you're fighting the good fight. I've met certain apologists whose ministries I've greatly benefited from. And then I meet them in person and go, wow, you're a real jerk. <laughs> now I get why you're an apologist. Because you really like to fight with people. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means, all right, I will not be asking you to speak at my church. Put it that way. Or you meet some of these guys and they're just so full of it and they're so arrogant. I'm doing God's word. I'm preaching God's word. And it can be, it can be heady. When you preach to a lot of people and everybody's coming up, oh, you're, such, you're so annoyed. You're such a great preacher. And listen, we need that as pastors because the devil is always after us. But when you start to believe that, I, I really kind of am special, aren't I? It's like, yes, you're so, you're so annoyed. It's like, I, I know, I know. No, you don't ever want to be like that. Even if you are doing God's word. There's no room for arrogance and pride and anger and violence in the leadership of God's church. Good family, good character, a commitment to God's word. Those are the marks of a church leader. And I will say to you this morning, I'm not a perfect man, but I believe that I meet these qualifications as your pastor. I'm constantly praying through these things. Hey, Lord, am I, am I quick-tempered? I don't think that I am, but I hope I'm not. Please help me, Lord Jesus. Lord, am I Violent? I don't think I am. But Lord, do I love good? I want to be a lover of the good. Lord, am I self-controlled? I believe that I am. And that's not arrogance or pride. That's just me saying, by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do it this way. By the grace of God and the support of all of you and the love and the strength you give me, I'm going to do it this way. But it's up to you to hold me to this. To hold me to this. That's up to the elders, the church, to hold me to this. This is part of their job. It's up to the leaders that are not part of the board to come up and let us know when they think we're slipping on some of these things. Not just to get bent out of shape because I did something you didn't like. And I'm going to ask for the grace from you that I hope Jesus would give to me when I make a mistake. When I have a day, I don't think I've done this here, but I have a day where I fly off the handle. I hope that when I repent and ask for forgiveness, I'll receive that forgiveness from you. If I have a day where I don't conduct myself quite the way that I should be, I hope that you would, you would step in and you would correct me. But then as I repent, that you would also forgive and receive, receive that from me. Because I'm going to try my best to do that with each one of you. And I've even told some of you all before, like, hey, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. But let it go. Because Jesus let it go. 
Above reproach, not perfect. And I'll say also, <laughs> quite often, I'll just be honest with you now, I feel, quite often I feel badly about myself as a leader for not being more forceful. Like, man, I just kind of like, let things happen. I should, just, I should just step in and do it, you know? Or I wish I was more inspiring to people. I wish like, you know, I'll hear, when you hear a great preacher, man, there's just nothing like it. But for me, it's like, I want to be like that. Why can't I be like that? Or I wish I was more shrewd as a businessman, you know, to be able to do right by this congregation. Sometimes I feel like, why am I in charge here? I shouldn't be in charge. I don't know what I'm doing with this stuff. But when I read this, it reminds me what's really important. And I promise you, I love Jesus with all my heart. And I know his word. And I'm working hard to know him better and to know his word better. And I'm committed to doing it this way. And I'm committed also to only laying hands and raising up leaders in this church that are going to be like that. We are not in Crete. <laughs> We're in Trustful. We're not Philistines. We're Americans. But just as God had a plan for Titus, he has one for us too. So we ought to listen to the same requirements that God gave to Titus as applying to us as well. 